Good morning. I can't see you all from up there. I have to move back a little bit. Besides, that way you won't get my cold. So that's a good thing. We're going to talk this morning about hope in the midst of grief. What is grief? I looked it up on Wikipedia. It says it's deep sorrow, especially caused by someone's death. It's sorrow, misery, sadness, anguish, pain, distress, heartache, heartbreak, agony, torment, affliction, suffering, woe, desolation, dejection, and despair. Aren't you glad you came to get cheered up this morning? (laughs) The dictionary.com says it's keen mental suffering or distressed over the affliction of loss, sharp sorrow, painful regret. And Merriam-Webster says it's a deep and poignant distress caused by or is as if by bereavement, an unfortunate outcome, disaster, trouble, or annoyance. Now, what's the definition of hope? According to the dictionary, it's a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. It's a wish, an ambition, an aim, a goal, a plan, a feeling of trust. And Merriam-Webster says it's to desire with expectation of obtainment or fulfillment, to expect with confidence. So you have grief over here, which is way down there. And you have hope over here, which is way up here. How, How do they mix? They're such totally opposites. How can I possibly have hope when I'm in the middle of grief? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning. But before we begin our discovery adventure, let me assure you that you can have hope in the midst of grief. So as we're going through this morning, hang on to that, that you can have hope when the sorrow is so deep and the pain is so sharp, you can still have hope. And we're going to look at how some people in the Bible did it and how we're going to do it today. Now, who experiences grief? If there's anybody out there who's never had any pain or any any sorrow, please don't speak out loud because it'll ruin my whole sermon. It'll, It'll just throw all my premises off. Not every grief is the same. When I say I'm grieving, it doesn't have to mean that I have physically lost someone. It just means I'm experiencing a loss or a pain that is so deep that I don't know what to do with it. I don't know how to handle it. I don't know where to go with it. One way that we experience grief is over the loss of a dream. Would you turn to 1 Chronicles 22 with me? And in 1 Chronicles 22, I'm going to start with verse 2. King David had a dream. King David's dream was that he was going to build a magnificent temple for the Lord because King David was living in a palace and God was still being worshipped in a tent. And King David said, this isn't right. I want to build a temple for the Lord. And he went to Nathan the prophet and he said, Nathan, I really want to do this. I can do it. I know the plans. I know how to put it in place. And I don't want to do it for me. I want to do it for God. And Nathan said, go for it. But then something happened. So let's go to 1 Chronicles 22, starting in verse 2. 
So David gave orders to call together the foreigners living in Israel, and he assigned them the task of preparing finished stone for building the temple of God. David provided large marks of iron for the nails that would be needed for the doors and the gates and for the clamps, and he gave more bronze than could be weighed. He also provided innumerable cedar logs for the men of Tyre and Sidon had brought vast amounts of cedar to David. David said, My son Solomon is still young and inexperienced. And since the temple to be built for the Lord must be a magnificent structure, famous and glorious throughout the world, I will begin making preparations for it now. So David collected vast amounts of building materials before his death. Then David sent for his son Solomon and instructed him to build a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said, My son... I wanted to build a temple to honor the name of the Lord my God. But the Lord said to me, You have killed many men in the battles you have fought, and since you have shed so much blood in my sight, you will not be the one to build a temple to honor my name. But you will have a son who will be a man of peace. I will give him peace with his enemies in all the surrounding lands. His name will be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel during his reign. He is the one who will build a temple to honor my name. He will be my son, and I will be his father, and I will secure the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Now, Solomon, may the Lord be with you and give you success as you follow his directions in building the temple of the Lord your God. And may the Lord give you wisdom and understanding that you may obey the law of the Lord your God as you rule over Israel. For you will be successful if you carefully obey the decrees and regulations That the Lord gave to Israel through Moses. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or lose heart. David wanted to build the temple. He probably had already started doing his drawings. He knew where the Holy of Holies was going to be. He knew where all the colonnades were going to stand. He had it all planned. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing to, to build a temple for the Lord. And David's excited, and he's ready to go, and God says, no. David, that's not what I want you to do. And David, it's because you fought in all these battles, and there's blood in your hand, and David thinks, but I fought those battles for you, Lord. I was serving you. But God says, no. David has a choice. He can stomp his feet. He can raise his fist. He can scream at God and say, but I'm going to build this temple because I know it's a good thing and I want to do it. So I'm going, it's my dream. But what did David do? He knew his son Solomon was going to be young when he had to build this temple. So David went out and he gathered everything Solomon needed to build the temple. He put it all together. He supported Solomon. He is his best cheerleader. You can do it, Solomon. This is what God has said you're going to do. He won't let me do it. And David wasn't angry. He didn't pout. He didn't walk away and said, okay, so nobody will build a temple. If I can't do it, nobody can do it. Have you ever had a dream for a ministry that you really, really thought was a, you know it's a good thing, you want it to move forward, and the election comes and somebody else is elected to do that ministry? And you're sitting there thinking, well, God, this is what I wanted to do for you. And the Lord says, no, 
You're done with that. Move on. Go forward into what I want you to do. Have you ever entered into a marriage where you thought you loved and you were loved, and now you're standing in divorce court? Your dream for your future is gone, and your dream for the future was to have a home that would be open to people who needed a place to stay, and, and you know, you know that as a family you were going to serve the Lord, but that dream has been shattered. How about the time you went for a job interview, for a job that you really, really wanted? And you went in, and they were so kind. They gave you all the papers, showed you where the bathroom was. You thought you had it made, man. You were going to get that job. And you got home. You waited a couple of days, and the phone rang. So you pick up the phone, and your best friend says to you, guess where I just got a job? There go your dreams. They've been shattered. You have a choice. You have a choice of holding on to that dream and becoming bitter and hard because you didn't get what you wanted. Or turning to God like David said and said, okay, God, you want my son to build the temple? I'll, I'll help him out. I'll make it work. Jeremiah 29.10 says, For I, the Lord, know the plans I have for you. They are plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. Psalm 147.11 says, The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. There is hope in the midst of the grief of the loss of your dream. It was a good dream. It was a good dream. And you had it for a long time. But something happened. Perhaps you were going to be an Olympian runner and you were in a car accident, and you can't walk. Dreams get shattered in many different ways, but the Lord has plans for you, and there are plans to give you a future and a hope. In the midst of grief and pain and sorrow, he's holding hope for you. Another thing that can bring grief is betrayal. Ever been betrayed by someone? Let's look at Genesis 37. Joseph was the son of Jacob. And I'm starting with verse 3. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day, Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. They couldn't say a kind word to him. One night, Joseph had a dream, and when he told his brothers about it, <laughs> they hated him even more. Listen to this dream, he said. We were out in the field, tying up bundles of grain. Suddenly, my bundle stood up, and your bundles all gathered around and bowed before mine. Skip over to verse 12. Soon after this, Joseph's brothers went to pasture their father's flocks at Shechem. When they had been gone for some time, Jacob said to Joseph, Your brothers are pasturing the sheep at Shechem. Get ready, and I will send you to them. I'm ready to go, Joseph replied. Go and see how your brothers and the flocks are getting along, Jacob said. Then come back and give me a report. 
So Jacob sent him on his way, and Joseph traveled to Shechem from their home in the valley of Hebron. When he arrived there, a man from the area noticed him wandering around the countryside. What are you looking for? he asked. I'm looking for my brothers, Joseph replied. Do you know where they are pasturing their sheep? Yes, the man told him. They have moved on from here, but I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph followed his brothers to Dothan and found them there. When Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him in the distance. As he approached, they made plans to kill him. Here comes a dreamer, they said. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. We can tell our father a wild animal has eaten him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard of their scheme, he came to Joseph's rescue. Let's not kill him, he said. Why should we shed any blood? Let's just throw him into this empty cistern here in the wilderness. Then he'll die without our laying a hand on him. Reuben was secretly planning to rescue Joseph and return him to his father. So when Joseph arrived, his brothers ripped off the beautiful robe he was wearing. Then they grabbed him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Then, just as they were sitting down to eat, they looked up and saw a caravan of camels in the distance coming toward them. It was a group of Ishmaelite traders taking a load of gum, balm, and aromatic resin from Gilead down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, Hmm, what will we gain by killing our brother? We'd have to cover up the crime. Instead of hurting him, let's sell him to those Ishmaelite traders. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. Joseph was wearing his robe that his dad had given him. It represented to Joseph the extreme love that his dad had for them. It was special to Joseph. And when he looked up and he saw his brothers in the fields and he's waving at them and he sees them, ah, you know, he doesn't know what they're saying. He thinks they're happy to see him. And he walks up to his brothers and his brothers grab that robe and they rip it apart. They throw him in the cistern. Joseph has got to be thinking, but you're my brother's. You're my family. I trust you. I love you. How can you betray me in this way? Betrayal among family members is the deepest wound, isn't it? And it doesn't even have to be that violent. It can just be a word that's said in haste. It can be opinions that divide us in our families. And sometimes decisions are made to take revenge on another family member. Hopefully you're not plotting murder. But you may think that I'm just going to tell this person a story that's not true about this other person. And then I know that person can't keep a secret. So it's going to spread. And gossip starts. And rumors start. And hurt and pain begins. I'm going to hold a birthday party and I'm not inviting that person. Even in our own families, even in our own church family, there can be hurt because of misunderstandings. 
There can be hurt because you've got something I want, and I'm mad. So instead of just accepting it and, and, and figuring it out, I decide to do something to you. I'm not going to mention flat tires because somebody's going to have one today and you're going to blame me, okay? <laughs> but we do. We fight. We gossip. We betray each other the same way that Joseph's family betrayed him. And Joseph had a choice. He's standing down in this stinking cistern. Doesn't have his precious robe. And he knows that his own family, as his own brother said, his own flesh and blood have just betrayed him. They've just turned against him in the most vilest manner ever. And Joseph's sitting down there. And what, what do you think Joseph's thinking? You just wait till I get out of here and I'm going to get you back. Is he? Let's look a little farther. Let's turn to Genesis. Well, we're still in 37. Let's read 36, verse 36 there. Meanwhile, the Midianite traders arrived in Egypt, the ones that have Joseph, where they sold Joseph to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Potiphar was captain of the palace guard. So now you have to see that Joseph, who was his father's favorite, he was the favored son, is now a servant. He's now the lowest of the low. He's way down there. And Joseph could very easily have been the servant that said, well, God, every day, just muttering under his breath, just, just doing what he has to do, but just doing it out of anger. If I ever see my brothers again, you know, he could have held on to that, couldn't he? We do that, don't we? That person better never come back to my house. Because if they do, the door's not unlocked. But let's see what Joseph did. Genesis chapter 39, starting at verse 1. When Joseph was taken to Egypt by the Ishmaelite traders, he was purchased by Potiphar, an Egyptian officer. Potiphar was captain of the guard for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. The Lord was with Joseph. So he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Potiphar noticed this and realized. Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. This pleased Potiphar. So he soon made Joseph his personal attendant. He put him in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. I don't think Joseph was a muttering servant, do you? I think Joseph said, God, you're still God, and I don't want to be here. I don't want to be a servant. I don't like Egypt, but I'm going to serve you. I'm going to continue to serve you. So Joseph did everything they gave him, 150%, and he did it with a smile, and he was friendly, and he was outgoing, and Potiphar noticed that. And what did Potiphar notice? that the Lord was with Joseph. He didn't notice that Joseph was a good guy. He didn't notice that Joseph was great with a hammer. He noticed that the Lord was with Joseph because Joseph hang, hung on to God and let the Spirit of God show through him in a situation that just plain stunk. There was nothing good about it. Psalm 3, verses 2 to 6 says, Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, 
my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep, but I wake again because the Lord sustains me. That's how Joseph was living. Joseph was saying, Lord, I'm down here and this really stinks and I don't like cleaning up after those camels. I don't like doing everything I have to do. I've lost so much. I've been betrayed. I'm in pain. But God lifts my head high. God, when I look into the mountains, I see you and I know that my life is worth living because you are still God and there's still hope for me. How awesome is that? When you feel betrayed, when you feel like someone has just sucked the life out of you because they've told something that isn't true about you or they lied to you, just remember Joseph. Just remember that the Spirit of God can show through you so much that in the midst of all the yucky stuff, people can say, I know the Lord is with that person. I can see the person. And I can see the Lord in their lives. My personal favorite, the one that hits my life the most, is personal failure. When you do something that you know is wrong, but you do it anyway. When you, when you want to serve the Lord, but you fail, either your fault or not your fault. Let's look at Luke chapter 22. And I'm only getting there faster than you are because I have post-its. Luke chapter 22, and we're starting at verse 54. We're talking about when Jesus is being arrested just before his crucifixion. And they arrested Jesus and led him to the high priest's home. And Peter followed at a distance. The guards lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat around it. And Peter joined them there. A servant girl noticed him in the firelight and began staring at him. Finally, she said, this man was one of Jesus' followers. But Peter denied it. Oh, woman, he said, I don't even know him. After a while, someone else looked at him and said, you must be one of them. Oh, no, man, I'm not, Peter said. About an hour later, someone else insisted, this must be one of them because he's a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. At that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Suddenly, the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. And Peter left the courtyard weeping bitterly. It hit Peter right at that moment. I have done the one thing that I said I would never, ever, ever do. I told Christ I'd follow him anywhere. I told him that no matter what happens, even my own death, I'd follow him anywhere. And I'm standing here And three times I've said I don't even know who he is. Peter's grief is so overwhelming. He is so hurt that he has failed his Lord. Have you ever felt that way? 
Have you ever done something that just makes you feel like, certainly, you must have stepped outside God's love boundaries at this point. His love, it just couldn't go that far. He can't accept you because of what you've done. I don't know about you, but in my life, that's a tool that Satan loves to use. If I'm anywhere near the thoughts of not being good enough for the love of Jesus, I I have pictures, and if you know me, I'm a very visual person, and I have pictures of something I did 60 years ago. I, I have thoughts of, I should never have done that. I've taken it to the Lord. I've been forgiven. It's gone. But Satan says, yeah, 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 yeah. But you know what? You did it. You failed. You're a failure. You're worthless. You can't be used by Jesus. This is what Satan was doing to Peter that night as he wept bitterly. And Peter had a choice. At that point, Peter could have run away. He could have gone on a boat, taken off. We know that Jesus would know where he was, but in Peter's overwhelming grief and his hurt and his pain, he's not thinking that way. He could have just said, I'm of no use to Jesus. I'm worthless. I I, I have ruined my entire life. I'm going to disappear. I'm going to go live in the desert, in a cave. I'm going to lay there until my bones rot and somebody finds me and says, oh, I wonder who this was. That could be what Peter did, but let's look at what Peter did. Turn to John chapter 21. Starting at verse 15. Jesus has been resurrected and he's meeting with his disciples. They've just had breakfast together. Bread and fish. Anyway, teach his own, I guess. But they've had bread and fish for breakfast. And after breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, excuse me, let's go back. Jesus repeated the question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord. You know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. So what's just happened here? Jesus, out of his love for Peter, is affirming to Peter that he still loves him. He's telling Peter, you know what, three times you deny me, so three times I'm letting you affirm that you love me. It's okay, Peter. You failed. But that failure is behind you and forgiven, Peter, so let's let's move on. And then he gives Peter a task. He says, feed my sheep. He doesn't say, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Okay, that's good. Jesus says, Peter, you love me. I know you love me. And I know you you failed me back there, but it's okay because I still have something important for you to do for me. 
When you fail Jesus, when you do something you thought you would never, ever, ever do, he still loves you, and he's waiting for you to come back so he can say, you love me, I love you first, and I have something for you to do for me. I still have worth through you. That's hope in the midst of grief. 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor is not in vain. Feed his sheep. Don't let Satan convince you that because of something you've done in your past, you're not worthy of being his child any longer. Nothing, nothing can take you out of God's love. I'll never forget the day I had to call home and say that my husband was leaving me and that I was having to get a divorce. I was the first one in the family to ever have that happen. I felt like the scarlet letter, the big D, was on me for years. I felt that my, my ministry in the church was done. How could I teach Sunday school? How, how could I teach that you need to be faithful to your spouse when my own marriage fell apart? It was a shadow over me for a long time until I began to understand that the failure of my marriage didn't mean that God doesn't love me. That my personal failure was not deep enough to take me out of God's grace. There are still times when Satan says, yeah, look at you. You know, I, I mean, I still have relatives that say, well, you know, that person over there, they're a divorcee. And I go, hello? I'm in the same boat. I know what your attitude is. I hate it as much as anybody else. But you know what? It happened. Life happens. Bad things happen. And sometimes we're the cause and sometimes we're not. But when Satan tries to convince you that you're a big enough failure, that God can't love you, just kick him in the teeth. Just tell him, get out of here. Because my God loves me. And he still has something for me to do. He still says to me three times, do you love me? Yes, I do. Then feed my sheep. Do my task. Do my work. Don't let the past hold you back. Now, sometimes grief comes when the Lord is slow. He just isn't answering those prayers. He's very slow to act. Let's look at John chapter 11. starting at verse 1. Jesus was good friends with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And a man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is a Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother, Lazarus, was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. When Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was 
for the next two days. Finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. Now we're going to skip over to verse 17. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. Now, he stayed two days. By the time he got there, they had written him the letter. Lazarus was sick. Then he died. And then four days after that, it's been a while, Jesus arrives. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem. And many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. So Martha's pain is not only that her brother has died, but she called for Jesus and he didn't answer Every day she went to the road looking for that cloud of dust that would mean that Jesus and the disciples were coming. And she watched Lazarus get sicker and sicker, and he died and still no Jesus. Where was Jesus? Why didn't he come? Didn't he know how much she needed him at that very moment to do this very thing, to, to save her brother? Have you ever had a prayer that you prayed for soul? And it's a good prayer. It's for the physical or emotional or spiritual healing of someone. It's, it's a prayer that, that you know is something God wants to see happen. But you keep praying and praying and praying, but it doesn't happen. You don't see the answer. At least not the answer you want to see. So Mary and Martha, at that very moment, they could have become his worst enemies, couldn't they? When he finally arrived, they could have shunned him. They could have said, yeah, well, you didn't come when I needed you, so I sure don't need you now. You ever done that to Jesus? You weren't here when I cried out to you, Lord. You didn't give me the answer I wanted, so therefore, I'm not listening to you any longer. I'm done. Living the Christian life is too hard, and there's no reward, so I'm done. I'm finished. Well, let's see what they did. Let's go back to uh, verse 22 of chapter 11. And Martha says, but even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. In the depth of her grief, Martha has the hope because she believes in Jesus. And Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. And Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life, anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? Now listen to what Martha, who's been extremely hurt by Jesus in her mind, says, Yes, Lord, I have always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. Do you see that? What is Martha holding on to in the midst of this most horrible time in her life? She's holding on to the truth that she knows that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus loves her, that Jesus is smarter than she is, that he knows there's a reason, and we know that he raised Lazarus from the dead. 
But what if he hadn't? I think Martha still would have said that same thing. So still would have stood there with that same thing. So let's get back to our starting question. How do we find hope in the midst of grief? Grief is a natural response to pain and loss. Grief is not bad. You need to grieve when you have a loss. You need to work through it. While we're walking through the mucky mire of loss, pain, and sour, how can we keep these circumstances from overwhelming us and putting us down where we don't belong? Because you don't belong down there under the circumstances. You belong full of hope from Jesus. But how do I get there when my eyes are so blinded by the pain I'm in? Psalm 30 verse 5 says, Weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. But how long is that night? (laughs) It doesn't tell you that, does it? Sometimes the night of weeping, the night of sorrow, the night of grief goes on and on and on. Sometimes I can make it go on longer than it's needed because I kind of like it there. Because everyone feels sorry for me. Everyone says, oh, you poor thing. But it doesn't have to go on because rejoicing comes in the morning. Through any grief that you experience, God is faithful. Psalm 23, verse 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Please note, this very day, you may not be dying of a disease or anything else, but you're under the shadow of death. You walk that valley every day because this body is not eternal. Thank you, Lord. This is not the one I'll spend eternity in, and I'm so thankful for that. So every day I walk under the valley of the shadow of death. But I don't need to fear because, why? Because his rod, his staff, his love, his mercy, his grace, his blessing, his plans for me can comfort me and bring me hope no matter where I stand. He's ready. He's standing right there with this big bucket and he just wants to pour it over me. But I'm moving. Well, not today, Lord. Can I I just savor this a little bit longer? Where are you this morning? What is your loss this morning? Is it a loved one? Is it a job? Is it your home? Is it a dream? I just want to tell you this morning, there can be hope in the midst of your loss and your grief. It's not going to change that loss. It's not going to raise the dead. It's not going to miraculously solve the problem but it will give you hope. Um, I'm taking a course on grief, and one of the things that they say that I think just resonates so true with me is they say that um, you don't move on when you've had a loss, because to move on means to just forget it and put it behind you. You can't do that, can you? You move forward. You move forward. You take the next right step. That's all you have to do. And you know what? Jesus has already walked ahead of you, prepared the way. He's had that machete out. He's chopping things out of the way. He's paving the road. He's preparing the way for you. 
You just have to take the next right step and place your hope in him and not let what's burdening you overcome you. Lamentations 3. The thought of my suffering and homelessness is bitter beyond words. I will never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss. Yet I still dare to hope when I remember this. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance. Therefore, I will hope in him. Every morning when I wake up, he's got a new bucket full of blessings and mercy and grace and love and patience and forgiveness. And he wants to just pour it all over me. Therefore, my hope is in him. I encourage you this morning as the praise team leads us in our final song. That if you just want to say, I need hope, then do it. You know, we have an altarless altar. <laughs> we have an area at the front that is prayed over and dedicated for those that are in need. But when you come up here, you don't have to spill your guts. You really don't. You don't have to tell anybody what you're coming for. Someone comes to pray with you, all you need to say is, I need hope. If you want to say more, go ahead. And if you don't, don't. But if there's any part of your life today where you need hope, where you need to, to remember that in the midst of the struggle you, you have hope in Jesus, then I encourage you right where you are or here at the front of the church, I encourage you to say, Jesus, be my hope. Jesus, be my hope. And sometimes you have to say it over and over and over again until it sinks from your mouth into your heart. But just know that you always have hope. There's always hope in the midst of any pain, any sorrow, any grief.